0: Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist, where we help you make sense of the incredible number of podcasts out there. This week, we're featuring one of my personal favourites from our own correspondent by the BBC. Now, in its sixth decade, the programme taps into the BBC's vast network of correspondents around the globe who contribute short dispatches, affectionately known by the shorthand Fuchs. If you've ever wondered what it might be like to peer into a reporter's diary at the end of a busy week, to get their take, the story behind the story, then this is about as close as you're going to get. Before we listen to this week's episode, I spoke with Pascal Harter, host of From Our Own Correspondent on the BBC World Service, to learn more about this BBC institution. Really excited to have you on. This was my choice to select from our own correspondent. I grew up listening to the show, but for the uninitiated,
1: can you give us your nutshell of what it's about? I also grew up listening to the show. I think (laughs) I was a child and looking at a map on the wall and hearing a report from Mongolia and looking on this map and thinking, Mongolia is huge. I didn't know Mm. anything about it. And here was this episode of From Our Own Correspondent with a dispatch from a reporter in Mongolia painting me a portrait. You feel as if you've been to a place. Right. And what makes
0: it different from the more usual news dispatches that you would hear from BBC reporters?
1: It's the reporter's personal impressions and what they were struck by. One of the problems is that then you find that you don't have anything left to tell your friends and family if they've listened to your <laughs> fook, as we call it. So, just to give you a taste of this, once I had um, the editor over to my house for dinner, and I really wanted to impress him because I was new at presenting from our own correspondent. I hadn't hosted it before, I used to contribute, and I'd just done a piece contributing from Iceland. So I was telling him how I was struck so much about the relationship that Icelanders have with the sun, that I'd been to this little village at the foot of some huge mountains. The whole village was cast in shadow for several months of the year. And so some people had a picture of the sun as their screensaver. And, you know, my editor had asked me about the country and I told him all of this. And then he looked at me and said, yeah, yeah, that that's all in your fook."
0: <laughs> he wasn't impressed.
1: Exactly, he wasn't impressed. Well, he was impressed with the work, but less with my dinner party conversation. And that's what, from our own correspondent, a good one really is. That's fascinating. And the show has run since, is it 1955? No, <laughs> I have the impression that it's been going since the beginning of time, that it just always (laughs) was. What do you think is the secret to its longevity? Well, correspondents love contributing to it, and Mm. that's because I think it's the only outlet that lets you paint a picture of a place in a very personal way. And I think for the listener... It really anchors the news and yet the pieces are reflective. So the correspondent has to have a moment to make sense of what they've just Mm. witnessed and been involved in. And you get real insight. Mm -hmm. You touched on there some of the
0: difficulties that your correspondents can have in recording in, in the field. What is the craziest place or there's the, m- the maddest situation that either you've recorded in or, or one of your correspondents?
1: The weirdest place that I've ever recorded from our own correspondent dispatch was in the Mauritanian desert during a locust plague. Oh, goodness. Yes, the sun had just set. And these things, I don't know if you've ever been around locusts, but they're basically like flying prawns and they're not shy. <coughs> you know, they dive bomb you. And I was trying to read the script off my computer but the screen was light the sky was getting Mm. dark this was attracting not just the locusts but all of the insects around and they were dive bombing me dive bombing the screen you know the audio was had these little kind of flex and 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 splatters and cracks as another insect hit the screen or, or hit me.
0: Wow, uh, you you must have some extremely impressive engineers to kind of to work with
1: that sound because you would never know it always sounds so like someone's in a studio. It's incredibly impressive. We've got great mm. technicians back in London who are are sometimes a very soothing voice on the end of the phone when you call up to file your dispatch. But often you have to do all of this by yourself. And I think another secret to from our own correspondent is that Tony Grant, who was the very long-running editor of the show, when, as a new correspondent, you would go and knock on his door to his little office, which was hidden in the old Bush House in our offices in central London, a bit like the Harry Potter platform <laughs> 13 and a half. He said that the reason the programme ran so long is that no one could find his office in order to axe the programme. But you would go in, I remember going in as a new correspondent and shyly saying, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in Congo, Brazzaville, could I maybe hear a bit about what you look for in a fook? And other Mm -hmm. editors, you know, they might look down their nose at you, but Tony wasn't like that. Tony took a longer view. Mm. And so he would say, come in, sit down, let me tell you all about from our own correspondent how fascinating that you're going there. And he would really cultivate relationships with correspondents across the globe. And so that's why we have such a rich history on the programme of getting reports from other places that, uh, yeah, some other programmes don't reach.
0: That was Pascal Harter, host of From Our Own Correspondent on the BBC World Service.
2: Today, with holiday air travel just within reach for many again, piracy at 40,000 feet has ignited international uproar. The trappings of power to be discerned in Chad. We glimpse gilded coffee pots and a fat expense account we hear of the history behind spain's african enclaves following a surge of migrant arrivals and what kind of a future for chile as so-called outsider politicians encourage citizens to raid their pension pots first to thailand and its border with myanmar where continuing violence by the burmese military is disrupting villagers lives Since the army's takeover earlier this year, hundreds have died as state security forces have confronted and pursued protesters in its cities. Many of the dead have been young activists, taking to the streets for the first time with few weapons or ways to resist the armed forces. But in Myanmar's rural areas, there are several rebel groups, mostly from ethnic minorities, who for decades have been resisting the military and some of the new protesters have now taken refuge with them. Laura Bicker has been seeing the effects of the military's renewed campaign on the border.
3: 26-year-old baby should be teaching a class full of children in her village in the mountains of eastern Myanmar. Instead... She's huddled under a sheet of tarpaulin in a makeshift camp beside a stream in a forest in Thailand. She's chosen one of the very few clearings in this humid jungle to set up a temporary home, perched on a bamboo mattress with dozens of other women and children who've crossed the border to seek refuge. One of the toddlers is listless and has a fever. His mum suspects it's malaria. Still, She says he's safer here than over the border. Myanmar military jets have bombed their village day and night for a week, they say. Baby ran with her two sons and could carry little else. The group only have enough food for a couple of days and no medicine. They are just a few of the thousands of ethnic Karen people now scattered in camps or hiding in the jungle along the Thai-Myanmar border. Unfortunately, it's a path these families know all too well – The local rebel movement, the Karen National Union, has been battling the Burmese military for decades. But this time, as one man told me, they brought big guns to the village. Fighting in the area escalated quickly after armed Karen fighters overran a Myanmar military post, killing dozens of soldiers. The retaliation was swift and brutal. We were shown footage of the bombs being dropped. The jets were clearly visible from the Thai side of the border. Since the coup in February, Karen insurgents have been some of the staunchest supporters of the pro-democracy movement, even harbouring activists fleeing the military's brutal crackdown in towns and cities. There are also reports that they've been helping to train members of a new defence force. The Karen people are not the only ethnic group to renew their long battle against the military. In the borderlands in the north and east, along the frontiers with China, Laos and India, other armed ethnic organisations have decided to take on the junta once more. Its leader, General Min Aung Lain, is powerful, but he's currently fighting on many fronts. Telling this story is challenging. My team can't get into Myanmar and even getting close to the border took two days. The Thai villagers decided to take us there in their truck and I couldn't understand why they were all piling into the vehicle with pickaxes and shovels. But soon it became abundantly clear. The road would have to be rebuilt along the way. Now, I use the term road loosely. It was in parts a creek bed, Elsewhere, the river was so deep we could see the heads of water buffalo as they wallowed. And yet, our driver said he'd made this journey many times. We were being shown what it takes to live in this difficult but beautiful terrain. Where flash floods had washed away the road, we'd jump out and arrange rocks to make a rough path in order to carry on. As we got close to the border, we saw the camps of scattered families lighting fires to make dinner. I assumed they'd all fled from Myanmar, but no, these were Thai villagers and they were also too scared to stay in their homes near the border due to the intensity of the fighting. A stray bullet had made it across the Salween River, which separates the two countries. The village chief also claimed that some shrapnel from a bomb had landed on a roof. He said this was the worst fighting he'd experienced in 70 years. Before long, we heard gunfire across the river. Then came the loud boom of mortar fire. The chief thought it would be safer if we stayed in one of the abandoned houses. It soon became clear why the villagers had fled. All night, 9pm, 11pm, 3am, 4am, came the sound of heavy clashes. The fighting may be in another country, but it feels close. People living on both sides of the border have been caught in the crossfire. In the morning, we had to leave. The Thai authorities are reluctant to let press near the border. They've been criticised in the past for turning away Karen refugees fleeing from Myanmar. When we were discovered, we were escorted out of the area. But we were told that food and medicine had been given to those who need it. My team and I left knowing we'd seen just a small snapshot of the crisis in Myanmar. Since then, many of the Karen refugees have crossed back over the border, determined to defy the military. Much like the millions of people in towns and cities, still determined to restore democracy. And although the villagers I met will attempt to rebuild their homes, few believe the fighting will end any time soon.
2: Laura Bicker a collective howl of outrage is a rare thing across nations, but the diversion of a Ryanair flight headed towards Lithuania to Belarus has caused a proper storm. A report of a bomb threat saw the plane land away in Minsk, where it became obvious that the real target was a young critic of the Belarus government of President Lukashenko, who was on board. Ryanair's Michael O'Leary commented pointedly that it was a case of state-sponsored hijacking, state-sponsored piracy. And James Landale has been following other reaction across Europe.
4: We all know that feeling. we finally got to our seat on the aircraft. The stress of getting to the airport is over. The hassle of customs and security is done. We settle back and submit ourselves entirely into the hands of the pilots and cabin crew. In short, we feel safe. As a diplomatic correspondent, there have been times I have felt this glow of relief even more acutely when departing a country in conflict. I can feel the tension slip away as I board the aircraft, restored to a neutral international space that is both familiar and reassuring. So it must have been for Roman Protasevich as he got on his plane from Athens last Sunday, bound for the Lithuanian capital, Vilnius. But instead of providing security, his Ryanair shuttle took him to Belarus, the one place the dissident journalist did not want to go, where he was facing arrest for organising opposition rallies. Belarus insists it broke no rules, but European and other countries say what happened was an act of unprecedented air piracy. For them, the false bomb threat, the scrambled warplane, the orders to land at Minsk amount to something close to hijack and kidnap. For Mr Protasevich, this was a personal disaster, the loss of his liberty and the threat of much worse. But for the international community, it was so much more. For this was not just about an individual breach of human rights or a technical infringement of international aviation law. This was about a country endangering a civilian airliner, one that was taking passengers between two European capitals, simply to allow for the arrest of a government critic. And what's more, according to Belarus state media, it all happened on the orders of the country's authoritarian leader, Alexander Lukashenko. I don't think you can underestimate the incredulity that reverberated across European capitals. Many diplomats still like to see themselves as guardians of something called the international rules-based system. This forced landing was an egregious violation of one of the most important norms that underpin relations between countries. I was shocked, one Western diplomat told me. This is new, and I don't think Lukashenko appreciates how much of an escalation this is. It's incredibly dangerous, he said, to cry wolf like this. It undermines the confidence that everyone has to have that it is safe to fly. Another diplomat said, we hadn't played this kind of thing out in our scenarios, but with Lukashenko out of his mind sometimes, things do happen. The president of Belarus once recommended vodka, as a cure for Covid-19. So there was a swift realisation across the EU that the crisis posed a huge test for a body that likes to claim it has strategic autonomy. Could its member states for once act together? The EU requires unanimity on foreign policy and that can prove hard. By chance European heads of government were due to meet on Monday anyway and Belarus was now top of the agenda. So sensitive were the discussions at the Justice Lipsius building in Brussels that the leaders were asked to leave their phones outside to reduce the chance of spies listening in. But this time there was no disagreement. How could there be, one diplomat told me? This was beyond politics. The EU announced plans to restrict flights to and over Belarus and agreed to draw up new sanctions. Crucially, these penalties would for the first time be targeted at businesses financing the government. But will it be enough? The existing sanctions against individuals in Belarus have not deterred human rights abuses. Diplomats say to give the new sanctions extra punch, they will be announced jointly between the UK, US and EU. But we don't yet know how hard these new measures will be. Some countries may not want to punish the people of Belarus for the sins of their leaders. Others may be reluctant to deepen the country's isolation for fear of pushing it further into Russia's embrace. Perhaps the deepest concern being felt by Western policymakers, though, is what precedent Belarus has set. Many authoritarian leaders increasingly feel able to carry out aggressive acts outside of their borders. Might they too now think it is acceptable to divert planes to arrest their opponents? This is not just about Belarus, one diplomat told me. This is about the rest of us, and whether we have to think twice the next time we get on an aeroplane. James Landale.
0: Hi there, Playlist listeners. We wanted to let you know about Course Correction, a podcast from Doha Debates, with assistance from the same folks at FP who produce this podcast. This season they've been delving deep into issues of polarization and tackling issues like gender, religion, wealth, COVID, and council culture. In each episode, host Nelfer Hadayat has been challenging herself to have difficult conversations and to broaden her perspectives to understand a range of opinions. Course Corrections goal is not only to demonstrate how world issues affect everyday people, but how we as individuals can affect change for the positive. Please subscribe to Course Correction wherever you get your podcasts.
4: My name's Kurt jai And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics,
5: physics, and consciousness. Exploring Grand Unified theories, as well as free will and God.
6: Even exploring aliens with former CIA, Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics
4: with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you?
5: Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify,
7: iTunes, all platforms.
2: Nervous times in the central African country of Chad. After Idris Deby, its military ruler for nearly 30 years, was reportedly killed in a desert battle in April, street protests erupted across its main cities. Many Chadians hoped that Deby's death might offer a rare chance to hold truly free and fair elections. Instead, Mr Deby's son, a general, now rules the country. He says it's only temporary, just to ensure stability until elections can be held in 18 months' time. But activists fear that if the transition to democracy doesn't happen soon, the window for change may clamp shut. And as Mayani Jones has been finding, those in power don't exactly share the priorities of ordinary Chadians.
5: It's a dry, scorching Friday in Chad's capital in Jemena and I'm relieved to get off the streets and step into the cool, air-conditioned reception of a giant skyscraper. Next to the front desk, a row of TV screens show a man in traditional attire singing in Arabic. This is the new building of Chad, the national broadcaster. I take a lift to the top floor, where my team and I have an appointment with the Minister of Communications. The Minister's office has an almost 360-degree view of the city. A scattering of tall buildings pierce the skyline and in the distance we catch a glimpse of the Chari River, beyond which lies neighbouring Cameroon. The minister smiles broadly as we file into his office. A former opponent of Idris Debi, Abdirahman Kulamala, was once a part of rebel forces that stormed the capital in 2008 to unseat the president. They were unsuccessful and a decade later he ended up working in Mr Deby's administration – Now he's been appointed spokesperson for the new transitional military government, headed by Mr. Debbie's son. As I walk into Mr. Kulamala's office, I notice a number of brand new shiny gold coffee pots on a meeting table in the corner. They're still in bubble wrap, but their gaudy appearance is hard to miss in the sparsely decorated room. Sorry, I can't offer you something to drink, apologises the minister. I've just moved into this office and nothing's been unpacked. He explains that his wife's friend got the coffee pots for him. She specialises in quality stuff, he adds. I didn't like the ones they had here before. These arrived just yesterday from Dubai. As we sit down, he puts on a face mask, laughing. To be honest, I've already had COVID. I had to go to France to get treatment. When I ask how often he goes there, he replies casually, well, before being minister, I used to go at least once a month. I suggest that once a month is quite a lot. He explains that all 11 of his children live in France and that his wife likes to shop there. He goes on to talk about how he can put up to 5 million Central African francs, that's £6,000 of expenses, on his business credit card. In a country where more than 60% of the population goes hungry every single day, it's a fortune. It strikes me as I look over the city from his glass office that the minister is somewhat disconnected from the reality on the streets below. Many Chadians believe they're constantly being asked to sacrifice their demands for good governance in favour of stability. Since Idris Deby's death, young people have taken to the streets, organising frequent protests calling for democracy. They say the current transitional military council is a coup d'etat. It's not a coup d'etat, clarifies the communications minister. It's a coup de force, he says with a smirk. I'd even call it a consensual coup de force. The transitional military government says it had to take power in order to stop the rebels who killed Mr. Deby from taking over the country. Stability is important, they say, because if Chadian armed forces are busy dealing with internal conflict, troops fighting extremist groups in the region might have to be redeployed. Chad is a crucial player in the fight against jihadism in Africa. Its troops fight alongside the French army against Islamist extremists allied with al-Qaeda and the so-called Islamic State. But as a lot of the media coverage of the death of President Debbie focused on the country's geopolitical role, ordinary Chadians feel their daily and domestic struggles are being forgotten. A couple of days before my meeting with the minister, when I called Derfinjia Abe, a prominent human rights lawyer, to organise an interview, she asked if we can do it in our hotel instead of her house. She explains that despite the crushing heat, she hasn't had any electricity at home in days. I have to wake up at two or three in the morning to collect enough water for the day, she adds. If I don't get it then, by five a.m., there's no more water left in the tap. Life is difficult here. People are dying from hunger and from curable diseases. For her, arguing that Chadians must bear with the transitional military government to ensure security and stability is unfair. We will never, ever accept Debbie Sun as our leader, she insists to me. There's no way.
2: Mayani Jones... Last week, several thousand migrants crossed from Morocco into the Spanish city of Theota in a matter of days. Although Theota has long been a destination for African migrants trying to find a way into the EU, the numbers this time were unprecedented. There were scenes of baton-wielding Spanish soldiers confronting young men washing up on the beaches. There were also pictures of some migrants walking right through the gates and checkpoints on land, apparently left wide open and there is a complex historic relationship between Spain and Morocco, says Guy Hedgco.
6: Ceuta isn't like most other Spanish cities. For one thing, it's in Africa. Like its sister city Melilla, which is 200 miles east, it's perched on the Mediterranean coast, surrounded by Morocco. These are bicultural cities, more or less evenly divided between people of European and North African descent. On the streets, you'll hear Spanish and Moroccan Arabic spoken. Many bars will serve jamon serrano and tortilla, while others, on the same street, sell halal meat. The peal of church bells is often followed by the Muslim call to prayer. Fences, in some places 10 metres high, surround the two cities in order to stop migrants from getting in. But on May 17th, such security measures had little effect. Over a period of 36 hours... Around 8,000 migrants, most of them Moroccan, reached Ceuta. Many swam round the border fence, while others drifted in on makeshift rafts. Some were even able to clamber round the fence at low tide. Eyewitnesses say the Moroccan police, normally so quick to thwart such attempted crossings, did nothing to stop them. It was the latest twist in Spain's complex relationship with Morocco, a relationship in which migrants are often centre stage. Just days before Morocco relaxed its border controls, allowing the migrants to cross, its government had made clear it was angry with Spain. In April, the Spanish government allowed a man called Brahim Kali to be treated for coronavirus in a hospital in Logroño in northern Spain. Kali is head of the Polisario Front which for decades has been fighting Morocco for sovereignty of the vast area known as Western Sahara. The Moroccan government saw Spain's willingness to admit a public enemy to one of its hospitals as a betrayal and recalled its ambassador in Madrid. After initially playing down the diplomatic incident, Spain's defence minister, Margarita Robles, hit back, warning Morocco that her country would not be blackmailed. One Spanish civil guard who has been posted in Melilla told me that Morocco uses immigration as if it were a currency. He said that every time Morocco wants to exert pressure on Spain or Europe, for example over fishing rights or an agricultural agreement, suddenly more migrants will start reaching Spain's two African enclaves. And it's not necessarily just trade and geopolitics which are believed to trigger such incidents. In 2014, the Spanish civil guard infuriated Morocco's King Mohammed by stopping him when he was jet-skiing off the shores of Ceuta and asking him to identify himself. In the days that followed, 1,200 migrants reached Spain from Morocco. There is a colonial backstory to all this. Spain fought for and occupied much of North Africa, including Western Sahara, from which it withdrew only in 1976. In 2002, Spain's Conservative Prime Minister, José María Aznar, deployed troops to take back Perejil, a tiny Mediterranean islet which some Moroccan soldiers had landed on and claimed for their own country. For some, Athnar's response was simply Spain asserting itself over a problematic neighbour, but others saw it as Madrid once again behaving as an occupier over a tiny piece of land normally inhabited by goats. For Morocco, Ceuta and Melilla are remnants of the colonial era, and it wants them back. Recently, in Spain, the far-right Vox party has underlined these tensions as it propagates its nationalist message, which is openly hostile to Muslim Africa. It also likes to evoke the so-called reconquest of Spain in the Middle Ages by Catholic forces, which defeated the Muslims who had ruled the country for centuries. Vox's leader, Santiago Abascal, described the recent arrival of the migrants in Ceuta as an invasion, and he accused the left-wing government of Pedro Sánchez of surrendering Spain's southern border. Yet most of those who crossed that border last week have already been repatriated. Of the several hundred who remain in Ceuta, many are unaccompanied children who came, often with the blessing of their families, knowing that Europe lay just the other side of the fence. Many of these new arrivals are sleeping in warehouses, which have been hastily converted into migrant accommodation. Others sleep rough on Ceuta's streets. This small, dusty frontier city where youth unemployment is at 70%, is a long way from their dreams of Spanish prosperity. For them, the future is uncertain. The only sure thing is that migrants will keep trying to cross into this piece of Spain, which happens to be in Africa.
2: Guy Hedgeco. Chileans sometimes joke that they're the English of South America, meaning the calm, understated, sensible ones on the continent whom foreign businesses tend to trust with their money. A couple of years ago, Chile's president Sebastian Piñera boasted that the country was an oasis of calm. Pride comes before a fall. Within weeks, there was a huge surge of social unrest. Massive demonstrations and widespread public disorder, as people protested over inequality, low pay, and the rising cost of living. As Chileans' household budgets have grown tighter, They've also grown more worried about the country's once emblematic pension system. Now a new breed of politician is seizing the limelight by suggesting voters should just go ahead and raid the kitty, says Jane Chambers.
7: What has a cartoon-inspired crusader, complete with pink cape, got to do with the grey, all-too-real world of pensions? Well, a lot if you live in Chile. Bamela Giles is a politician and former journalist who claims to have President Pineda on the floor and dancing to her tune over the widely resented way the country deals with retirement. Last July, after months of campaigning, Congress finally gave its approval for Chileans to withdraw up to 10% of their pension fund. The President said he'd agreed to it given the difficult economic and social situation and was adamant it was a one-off measure to help people during the pandemic. To celebrate, Pamela pulled a stunt, an anime-inspired Naruto run which went viral. She charged through the Congress building in Valparaiso, whooping with joy in her bright fuchsia cape and with her arms spread out behind her, much to the amusement of many Chileans who saw her as light relief amongst the fuddy-duddy old-school politicians. Despite government's efforts to stop them, two more withdrawals have since been pushed through Congress. Approval ratings for the president are at an all-time low of around 9%. Pamela and her supporters are gleefully revelling in his weakness and demanding to empty the pension coffers altogether. Ironically, Sebastián Piñera's older brother José was one of the people who designed the private pension scheme back in General Pinochet's dictatorship during the 1970s and 80s. He was one of the Chicago Boys, a group of Chilean economists educated in the US by Milton Friedman, responsible for the so-called economic miracle that made Chile a poster child for neoliberalism. At first, their new system was copied and applauded around the world as a surefire way to retire with dignity. But over time, the cracks began to show. An ageing population, not enough contributions and an unstable job market didn't help the model. Only a tiny minority was going to enjoy the benefits. Long before the social unrest of 2019, protesters poured onto the streets waving banners and chanting No More AFP, the name of the privately run system. They accuse its managers of being part of the business elite, who get rich at the expense of others and don't care about the welfare of their clients. The President and many economists argue that people like Pamela are irresponsible. The government is already offering pension reforms, they say. The withdrawals will do the system untold damage, meaning millions of Chileans' pension funds won't be able to pay out even the minimum wage. Financial experts gravely trot out a Chilean proverb that they're getting bread today in exchange for hunger tomorrow. But it's too late. I want to take all my savings out now. Better for me to have the money, because I think the FAP are going to steal it from me, my local newspaper seller tells me. That's where the pink cape crusader Bermelajiles comes in, She's skilfully manipulated these fears. She's taking advantage of the ignorant masses and channelling their anger against the system. It's pure populism, says one well-read and thoughtful friend of mine. He hates the current government, wants to reform the pension system, but he can't stand her extremism. Commentators liken her to Donald Trump and Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, sometimes in the same breath, and scoff at her lack of political experience. But people are frightened by just how far this could go. Unlike President Piñera's, her approval ratings are soaring. Recent surveys put Pamela as the most popular possible candidate for president in November's elections. Her critics want to dismiss her as a caricature, dressed in quirky outfits, playing to her fans with random dances to celebrate her wins. She often refers to herself in the third person as Abuela or Granny, her nickname when she worked on TV and radio gossip shows and was the oldest journalist there. She can be abrasive dismissing the millionaire businessman president as a fool and boasting that she's here to teach the other politicians how to do their job. But her followers, she calls them the grandchildren, insist the country needs someone prepared to tear the whole system down. Pamela claims she'll replace all the money that was taken out of the pension systems to ensure that people won't starve in their old age. But how? Taxes on the super-rich and copper companies as the metals price soars. Investors are nervous. Chile was meant to be the shining example of stability in Latin America, but recent polls to elect new mayors, regional governors and the people who will write Chile's new constitution showed voters turning their backs on traditional political parties, with many choosing candidates from the radical left. Now taxi drivers, lawyers and teachers, people from all walks of life, muttered darkly about how the country could become the next Venezuela if someone like Pamela is elected later on this year.
2: Jane Chambers... And that's it for today. We're back on Saturday morning as usual. Do join us.
0: And that was from our own correspondent. Our thanks to Pascal Harter and the BBC for sharing the episode with us. Listen and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, or listen online at bbc.co.uk. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. This show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Darcy Palder, Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin, and Simone Perez. Our executive producer for podcasts is Dan Efron.